We are in John chapter 2. We can go up to the sermon here now. Okay, what did I do? John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. So we are continuing in our series on John and uh, finishing up with chapter 2 today. We are, we are moving along at a, at a decent, uh, kind of a brisk pace here. I'm going to read through it first. Here in a kind of a transitional verse, it says, After this, he, he being Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. Um, as we come back around here, it says here in the beginning, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the, the reason for this is very simple. If you read in the Old Testament, there were three major festivals every year that every Israelite male was supposed to observe by going up to Jerusalem. Sometimes the entire family went if they were you know, particularly devout. But every man, every male, according to Mo the law of Moses, had to go up to Jerusalem and to, to, to present sacrifice and to, to do various acts of worship. Jesus, being a perfectly law-abiding Jew himself went up to Jerusalem. He had been going up three times a year throughout his life. I am I'm quite certain of that. So he goes up, his disciples go with him. Now, uh, when they're there, they find that this temple, the temple courts there, there were people inside the courts of the temple selling various animals. It says oxen, sheep, pigeons, what these were, were animals that people could purchase in order to sacrifice them to God according to the law of Moses. You can read about this in Leviticus. There are all sorts of sacrifices that people were to bring before God, and these animals were there so that people could buy them. Now, the reason that these animals were there too was because 
uh, people might be traveling from far away to go to Jerusalem. And you know, it, it might be very difficult for them to bring an oxen, an ox, or to bring a lamb, or to bring a pigeon with them um, tens or even hundreds of miles from where they were up to Jerusalem to sacrifice it. So these animals were there um, ostensibly as a service to the people. They were there so that they could just come, buy it right there, and then present it as a sacrifice. There were also money changers there. Now, these people were, were there to convert money. And the reason for that is because they only accepted certain types of money in the temple for the temple tax. There are certain things that, that Jews had to do. They had to pay according to the law. Um, and one of them was the temple tax for the, the, the upholding and the maintenance of the temple and providing for, for everything that happened there. But only certain coinage was accepted. Now, remember, Jews were coming from all over the, the Mediterranean, right? They were scattered ever since the Assyrian Empire exiled them, Babylonian Empire exiled them, and they're bringing all sorts of coin, coinage from the various countries that they lived in, but they were not all acceptable. So they had to come and convert it into uh, Tyrian coinage, it was called, and, and use that in the temple. So this was ostensibly a service as well for the people. And it says that Jesus walked in, and when he saw this, when he observed this, he made a whip of cords. And what a whip of cords is, just taking a bunch of ropes and, and kind of fastening the end of it together in some way. And the, the, the strands are kind of like, you know, flailable, like a flail or something like that. And it says he begins to drive everybody out of the temple. And he's like, you know, you go and you smack the, uh, the oxen, just like, you know, farmers do. They, they, and they, they hit them so that they're like, right? And they start, start you know, running around and, and, and going all over the place. And Jesus starts driving them and the sheep out of the temple, right? Like a, like a cowboy, right? Like, you know, right? like just, just, you know, scattering these animals, and they start going all over the place. And, and you can imagine things start, start getting crazy and feathers start flying everywhere and all this stuff. And then it says that he went over to the money changers tables and they're sitting there looking up at him and he grabs their, their bowls or their boxes or whatever they were using. And, you know, got money from Babylon here. He got money from Assyria here. He got money from this and that place here. And he takes them, he starts turning them over and coins are are, are, are falling on the ground and scattering everywhere. And, and people are like, oh my gosh. And maybe some people are like, oh my gosh. And they start grabbing that money and, and, and things are going crazy. And then he says, he overturns their tables. So he goes and he starts flipping these tables over. And these people are getting up and it's crazy. It's like pandemonium in there. And people begin to scatter and they begin to run out of the temple courts. Now, here's a question. Why is Jesus so upset? Why is he so angry? And that's a really important question to ask because when I think about it, when I read the Gospels, I can't think of a time where Jesus is more visibly angry than this, than when he goes into the temple. And, and according to many theologians, he doesn't do this just once. Other gospel accounts, he, he does it a different time, but it's the same thing in the temple courts, turning over the tables, driving out what was going on there. 
This is the angriest that we see Jesus, visibly so angry that he will remove animals by force, flip tables, scatter these money changers' money, and it's pandemonium there. Why? What was he so upset about? Well, it says here, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What Jesus was so angry, what he was so upset about, what he was incensed about is that his father's house was being turned into a different kind of house, specifically in this case, a house of trade. What was his father's house supposed to be? The temple courts. The temple, it's supposed to be the place where where God's presence dwells, where people come and approach God with reverence and awe, recognizing their sin and their need for forgiveness and the need of sacrifice so that their sin could be forgiven. People were supposed to be overwhelmed that they could approach the presence of this holy and almighty God. It was supposed to be a place of prayer and contemplation and acts of worship. But the religious leaders turned it into a market. They turned it into a a bazaar is what it became. I picture like, you know, if you're from SoCal, you know what a swap meet is, right? You know, this place where you go and there's like all these tables everywhere and you can go and people selling all kinds of stuff like jeans and shirts and kind of used stuff and, and stuff they don't want anymore from the garage and like all sorts of random stuff there. It's like a huge marketplace. That's what the courts, the outer courts here had become. The religious leaders under their authority and their supervision had turned the temple courts, God's house, into a house of trade. Why? Well, because they loved money. Because they were motivated by greed, by profit. We know that Jesus said to the Pharisees, that they were greedy, that they were lovers of money. We see him point this out. On another occasion when he's flipping the tables, according to Matthew, Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. You know, theologians do say that, you know, the money changers, that when you came and you changed money so that you would go and and pay this temple tax, that they would charge over a 10% markup. Over 10%. You know, like when you, when you travel to a foreign country, if you've ever been, you know where you do not change money, right? At the airport. You don't change money at the airport because the rates are egregious. The markup is crazy. Sometimes like 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%. Here, this service to God, supposed to be a service to God, was marked up by over 10%, according to some theologians. And some theologians say that oftentimes, even if you brought your own animal there to sacrifice, they would often look at that animal, and even if it was a perfectly good animal, they would go, no good, you got to buy ours. You know, how, you know how that works, right? You go to some place, they say you could bring your own thing, whatever it is, and you go there, they're like, nah, you can't use that. You got to go to our store, right? Why? Because there's profiteering there. 
They loved money. They were motivated by greed. They turned it into a house of trade. But they, they covered up all of this. They covered this all up with the veneer of religion. We are offering a service to the people. We are helping people to be able to worship God and fulfill their religious obligation, religious duty to the Lord. We're doing this for them. But just like in verse 25, Jesus said, it says about Jesus, he knew what was in the heart of all people. He knows what was going on in their heart. It was profit that motivated them. And they turned a place of reverence and awe where people are supposed to come and meet God in God's house they turned it into a house of trade, into a marketplace, into a bazaar. Jesus was so angry. Why was he, again, why was he so, why was he angrier than any other place that we see him in the Bible? Because people turned God's house into something that it shouldn't have been. People do that in church all, all the time, friends. We are just we don't need to buy animals anymore. If we did, I guarantee you, we wouldn't put them in here. We'd put them outside after reading this. We'd put them somewhere far away. But we, we, we still turn God's house. Christians today turn God's house into something else all the time. We can also turn it into a house of trade. You know, there are many people who go to church primarily to network. They go to network. They go to church in order to profit themselves in some way. I think I'm going to go to this church because I like the social status of the people there. I like the fields and the industries that the people work in there. I like the net worth of the people there. I think I can make some, some good connections there that will help me advance in my life and improve my situation in life. Many people go to church looking for clients. Say, hey, yeah, you know, how was prayer meeting this week? Oh, you know, it was good. It was good. And here, you want my business card, by the way? You know, like uh, people do that all the time. Maybe if they're in sales or, I don't know, they offer professional services of some sort, they view the church as a place in order to make money and further their career. They turn God's house into a house of trade. We can do that today. Plenty of people do that today. Another thing that we can turn God's house to is we can turn God's house into a mall. We can do that too. And sometimes we do do that. And when we do that, we, we call that being a consumer Christian. When we turn God's house into a mall. You know, like, a, you know, like Westfield Valley Fair, right? That's a nice mall. You know, when, what do you do when you go to the mall? Do you go to the mall and do you go and walk around in every store? Do you go, let me see what that interesting store is. Let me, let me go one at a time and go check out every store there and see what this mall is really about. Let me go into the management office there and ask them, what is your mall really about? I want to know the heart and the soul of this mall. We don't do that. We go into the mall, you find what you want, you get that, you get whatever you need, and then you leave. You need a pair of jeans? You go get a pair of jeans. You want to see a movie? You go watch a movie. You want to go eat that burger? You eat that burger? You get it done, you get what you want, and then you leave. Many people, we treat church, we treat God's house as a mall. We do that. You know, it's like when we, when we say, you know, oh, you know, I like this church. Why? Because I, I, I like the sermon here. I really like the sermon here. 
That's why I'm at this church. That's kind of like going to the mall and saying, you know, I want to watch a movie. I like this, I like this church because the sermon, it's entertaining. I don't fall asleep. It's, it's, it's okay. It does the job. Or maybe you go into church and you say, I'm in this church because I like, I like the music here. That's why I like it. Yeah, I like the band. I like the instruments and the songs that they play. That's like, like going to the mall and, well, back in my day, there was something called a CD store. You go in, you buy CDs. Now, music stores don't exist really anymore. But back in the day, that's what we did. We go in and we say, that's what I need. That's what I want. And, and don't get me wrong, these things are not bad. We, we hopefully will go to a church right, and where the sermon is good, where the worship is good, and, and there are things that attract us to that church. But if that's all that it's about, and you go to that church and you don't serve others, you don't give, but you just let others give and, and fund our missions, fund our outreach, fund what we're doing here, if you aren't willing to sacrifice for other people and sacrifice to help build up the church, you're not going to church. You're going to the mall. You're going to the mall. I'm going to the movies because I like that sermon. I'm going to the music store because I like that worship. I'm going to get a meal here, and then I'm done. That's the mall. That's not church. We do that too. We become consumeristic in our Christianity when we don't go to church consistently as well. Why do you say that? Why do I say that? Because when we approach church in that way, when we say, how do we, how do we go to church? Well, you know, I, I feel like going to church today. I feel like I could use a little bit of a pick-me-up. You know, Ulysses, that guy, he tells these dad jokes once in a while. They're terrible. But, you know, sometimes they, they, I get a chuckler out of them. I wouldn't mind going to see some people and going to grab lunch afterwards. But then when we don't feel like it, when we don't feel the need, we don't come. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, the church is the body of Christ. And every one of us, we are a different part of the body of Christ, and we all need each other. Do you know what a, a mature Christian says? A mature Christian says, it's not about just me going to church and when I need something, when I need a pick-me-up, when I need some community. But I am a special part of the body of Christ that God has placed me here for a specific reason and I come every week and I, I participate. I get involved in the life of the church because somebody here may need me. Because this church needs me. And God has made me to serve and to build others up and to encourage them and to love people. And I come also to be available for others. That's not a consumeristic mindset. That is a mature mindset. We can easily turn God's house into the mall. Some of us, we turn God's house into a fraternity or a sorority. You know, the, the number one reason I, I've heard from many of you, many people who come to our church, when I ask them, why are you here? Why did you end up at Renewal? The number one reason, I think, you know, anecdotally, that I've heard over the years is that people say that they were looking for people their age. That's the number one thing I've heard. Oh, in the church that I was going to, there weren't many people my age. There's like a small group of us, but renewal, you, you know, there are more people my age. 
and I feel more, more connected here for that. Hey, that is totally fine, okay? If God is leading you to do that, if you're prayerful about that, if you discuss that with your church shepherds and your pastors and they bless that, I think that's totally fine. That's totally fine. We, we, we want to find people that we can connect with. And a part of that might be people in a similar life stage as us. But brothers and sisters, friends, that cannot be the only reason or even, even the highest reason that we come here. We need to be a community. God's house is a community that is built in Christ. A Christ-centered community where we speak the truth in love, where we are vulnerable with each other, where we are open with each other about our our sins and our shortcomings, where we confess that to each other, where we um, are willing to have difficult conversations, where we're willing to point out each other's sins for the sake of growing together as a community, where when we hurt each other, we're not passive-aggressive, but we seek reconciliation and forgiveness. We need to be a house of God centered upon Christ as our community. You know, I, I would say it's a, it's a warning sign if, you know, after church, you were to go out to eat lunch together as a group or something like that with a bunch of other Christians, brothers and sisters, and you're just having a lovely conversation. You're talking about your week and, you know, maybe the latest show that you watched or where you want to go on vacation. And then one person says, you know, guys, I, 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 can I share something with all of you? I want to tell you something that God's really placed on my heart lately as I read his scriptures. I want to tell you something that he's been challenging about in my life. Now, if somebody says that and the, the vibe around the table suddenly changes and the feeling in everybody's heart is basically awkward, I would say that's, that's, a, that's a warning sign. That's like an, an orange flag. That, that there's something, maybe we're missing the mark in some way about the type of house that we are supposed to be because those types of conversations that are centered in Christ, centered in the Scripture, centered in the deeper things going on in our lives should be absolutely normal in this community. They should be the things that we are seeking, that we desire to experience in the house of God. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to turn God's house into something else. Whether a house of trade or the mall or a social club. But this, Jesus was more upset about this than anything else that we see in the scriptures. You know, Jesus... He, he doesn't get this angry with the Gentiles as you read through the Gospels. I don't see that with the, the non-believers, with the people who are not the people of God. He doesn't get that angry with them. He gets most angry, most angry when people who claim to be his people come together in the name of religion but for ulterior motives. That's what makes him most angry. When we come in the name of being together as the people of God, in the house of God, but we make it about something else. And for that, Jesus flips tables. He will not have that. That is not what he came for. He did not come so that we can live with the veneer 
of Christianity, but gathering together for ulterior motives. You know, you ever like go and go desk shopping or table shopping, and you go and you see that beautiful wooden table, and you're like, oh, I would love to put that in my home. And, but as you get closer to it and you look, and you go, that doesn't look like wood. It looks like wood, but it looks like plastic. And then you kind of knock on it, and it sounds hollow. And I always do this shake test when I find furniture. I shake it, you know, and, and I can tell, wow, this is not wood. What is it? It's just, it's a piece of plastic on top or something that looks like wood, but inside it's sawdust. It's particle board. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Most of my furniture is that stuff. I, I go to Ikea. That's basically where I buy my stuff. That's okay for furniture, but it is not okay for our relationship with God. It's not okay when it comes to relating to God. Jesus won't have that. Jesus won't have that. In, in some ways, I think in the Gospels, I think there's an argument where he says, Basically, if you're going to come like that, don't come at all. Don't come at all. Isn't judgment, isn't judgment harsher for those who know the truth but abuse it than those who don't know it at all? Certainly that pattern is there in the Gospels. And when the disciples see this, it says they remembered zeal for your house will consume me. When they saw this zeal of Jesus come out about this false religion desecrating the house of his father, this zeal comes out that causes them to make a whip of cords and turn tables and, and, and pour out the money changers' money. And this verse here, zeal, zeal for your house will consume me. I just want to point out, I want to make sure that we understand, I don't think this is saying Jesus was so zealous about this that he was consumed with zealousness, although he certainly was incredibly zealous. But, but this zeal, what it means actually, is that his, this zeal was so great that it ended up destroying him, which is true. He went to the cross, ultimately, at the hands of the religious leaders. If we look in Psalm 69, this is where it comes from. When David says, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What's David saying? David is saying, is because of you, O oh God, because of my zealousness for the house of God, because of my zealousness for the name of God, I am being reproached. I am being criticized. I am being dishonored. It covers my face. In fact, it's even, I've become a stranger to my brothers. I've become an alien to my own family. Because of this, there is so much reproach, so much dishonor, it's actually consumed me. I have been, I am being destroyed and consumed by this. I can only imagine David, his zeal for God when he hears Goliath taunting the armies of Israel and taunting God himself. David said, I ain't going to have any of that. In his zeal, he goes out and he kills Goliath with a sling and a bunch of stones. And what does he get for it? Saul being jealous. Vendetta to kill David because he was insecure. 
whereas David was just zealous for the name of the Almighty God. Jesus, his zeal was so great that ultimately it did consume him through his death upon the cross at the hands of the religious leaders. This is what he segues to here in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now this is, this is interesting here when they say this. Why did they say this? We have an expression, no, older people have an expression, uh, the proof is in the pudding. When was the last time anybody here in their 20s said that, right? But you should know it. It might come up in an old movie or something. We say the proof is in the pudding. Back then, for the Israelites, for the Jews, it was the proof is in the power. What they were saying was, what, what right? What authority do you have to do this? Show us. Show us a sign. Show us power from God, that, that, and then we'll believe. Is it, the weird thing is, why didn't they just restrain Jesus? Like, you know, Jesus was a carpenter. He was from Nazareth. It was a poor region. He was probably about like maybe five feet tall, uh, thin, because he was not rich, was not able to afford meat all the time, wiry, decently muscular because he was a carpenter, but thin and muscular, wiry and short. Um, that was probably what he really looked like. You don't think there was one big dude in the temple that the priest could have been like, hey, big dude, this is your, you have one job, this is it right now. You go behind Jesus and, you know, does the thing, lifts him off the ground and walks out with him. You think they have one big dude? So why, why didn't they just restrain him? I think there are a couple of possibilities. One, messianic expectations were very high during this time. So maybe, maybe in some ways they're thinking, okay, could this actually be the Messiah? If you are, show us a sign. Or secondly, perhaps... Also, maybe in some ways, they kind of recognized that they were sinning and that they were profiteering and that they had turned God's house into something that it shouldn't be. Maybe there was kind of some guilt within them, some recognition that made them a little bit sheepish and kind of put up with this in some ways. I don't know. Whatever it was, they asked Jesus. They said, show us a sign. What sign are you going to show us that you have the authority to do this? And what does Jesus say? I imagine him saying it probably like this. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, the Jews, when they heard this, they were incredulous. Incredulous. Here's a, a representation of the temple here. And uh, I, I know it's our projector. Maybe it's time for an upgrade here. But I think you could see the idea. The temple, you could see these little, there are these little black dots here all around it. Those are people. They're tiny, tiny. They're like, like ants. They're like ants. And the temple is this massive building there. And the Jews hear Jesus say, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
And they're looking at this, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're looking at this, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, it took us 46 years to build this. 46 years. And you are going to build it? If, we, if it gets torn down for whatever, you're going to rebuild it in three days by yourself? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I missed your six disciples here with you. Oh, sorry. I, now you got seven people. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be no problem now for you. They can't even move one of the big stones in place. How in the world could they possibly do that? I know in our days, we think about that, rebuilding the temple. We're like, three days? I, you know, we could kind of do that, I think. We got a lot of construction techniques, and now it's not that impressive to us. It's like, come on, sir, have you watched Fixer Upper lately? Do you know what they can do? Like, have you seen that? Man, you know. But, but back then, impossible. It would be more like, like I'm from New York City, right? It would be more like me saying, destroy all of this city, all five boroughs, Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, not Queens where I'm from, destroy it all, tear it all down, and I will rebuild this entire city in three days. Oh, now you're talking, Ulysses, because that's impossible. All the resources of our country couldn't do that. All the resources of the world could not do that in three days. There's no way that would be impossible to do. What was Jesus talking about here? It says that actually what he was speaking about was the temple of his body. Why, why, why does he call himself a temple? Because, well, well, you know, if you've been in church for a while, the temple is the place where people meet with God. And Jesus is God. He's the ultimate temple. And when he says... Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. You know, maybe people are looking at him, they're going, this temple. But he's going, no, this temple, my body. Now, here's, here's where I think what we may do if you're a Christian when you hear this. Woo, yeah, okay, now you're talking. That's more manageable, Jesus that building, building it up in three days, that's crazy. Come on. Unless you go out there and you stick out your hands and all the pieces start floating, like, you know, like your Magneto or something, and kind of swirls around and you build it, right? But that's, that's, you're not going to be able to do that. That's crazy. That's crazy. But of course, what you're talking about is your own resurrection. And we've gotten so used to the resurrection of Jesus that it becomes so plain, it becomes so innocuous, it becomes so second-hand, second-nature, old hat to us. But here's the thing that we need to see from this. Actually, what Jesus is doing here is this is a lesser to greater than argument. This is a lesser to greater than argument that Jesus is doing here. How so? When the people looked and said, you're going to be rebuild this temple in three days, they said, that is absolutely impossible. Impossible, first. Impossible. Second, but if you were able to do it, okay, you win. 
you're certainly the Messiah. If you could do that, absolutely, we would believe you're the Messiah. No argument, hands down. One, it's impossible. Two, you would be the Messiah. When Jesus came back from the grave, when he was resurrected, he did something far more impossible than building a building in three days. I don't care how many resources you have. I don't care what it is. You're not bringing somebody back from the grave. Nobody can do that. It is impossible. It is something that only God can do. And this is why, truly, without a doubt, He is the Messiah. He has the authority and the right to tell us what true worship is all about. This is why the disciples, it says in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, they remembered what he said, and then they believed the Scripture. They said, truly he is the Messiah. Truly he is the Son of God, because nobody could come back from the dead. That is impossible. No matter how many resources, no matter how, many how much technology we have, Truly, he is the Son of God. Friends, Jesus was so zealous for the purity of God's house. He was so zealous that we worship God rightly, that we come to him rightly, not with fake religion, not with a veneer of religion, that he willingly went to the cross, that he was willingly consumed by the wrath of God so that the temple could be purified, so that our hearts could be purified, so that we could walk with God in a right way. He is the temple. He is how we now truly meet with God through Christ, through faith in Christ, in Christ. We can come to God as we truly were meant to. Brothers and sisters, in 1 Peter Peter wrote, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does Peter say? Peter says, we are the house of God. It's not a temple. It's not a place in Jerusalem. It's not a building. It's not the Sunnyvale Community Center. It's us, the people of God. Jesus was consumed by the wrath of God so that we could walk with God rightly as the people of God, in purity, with, without ulterior motives, but with a longing for holiness, with a longing to walk with God simply because He is God and because I want to walk in the truth. I want to walk with God in the way that Jesus made possible through his death upon the cross. Friends, I want to close with one thing. I don't remember when. A couple of, I think it was two years ago, me and my family went to um, Oahu, went to Hawaii, and uh, we're in Hawaii. We're like, what do we do? We go to do some touristy stuff. 
One famous place to go is to go to the Pearl Harbor Memorial. Have you guys, how many of you guys been there? Have you guys been there? Some of you? Okay. Wonderful place. Just totally go check it out. When you go there, there is this um, memorial there built to the USS Arizona and, and you know, and to everybody there who, who lost their lives in the, the attack on, on Pearl Harbor. And if you've been there, it is a, it is a beautiful, beautiful building. And when you, you go in, there's a, uh, it's just a really solemn design. I, I think it's meant to evoke like, like a ship in, in different ways. And there's an opening in the floor there where you can look down and you can see the remains of the USS Arizona where uh, over 1,100 soldiers, uh, you know, Marines and, and sailors died. They're entombed there in that ship under the water uh, because they gave their lives for, for our country and, and for the freedoms that we can enjoy here. And when we went to visit, it was, it was really so beautiful. It was so well done. And when you walk in there, the tour guides are, are um, Navy or maybe Marine veterans. Um, and you could tell the reverence and the respect that they have for that place. When you go there, you don't run around. If our kids were going to run around, I'd be, stop! <laughs> not here, not now. You don't, you don't yell. You don't talk loudly. You don't snack on a bunch of chips while you're walking around. You're there. Why? There's not even a ship there. You can't see it. It's under the water. But, but this was built, and these soldiers, these, these sailors are there giving this tour and you could tell through the way that they give this, they want you to know what happened here. You can't see a ship. It's under the water. You could just drive by, and you would not know what happened there. But they built this. They do these tours. They built this beautiful place because they want you to know what happened. They want you to understand that this is, is a sacred place, that this is hallowed ground for them that over 1,100 sailors and marines are buried there below your feet. They're, they're so passionate about making sure that you know that something happened here. These people gave their lives for the freedoms that we have now. Friends, we can, we can be zealous about so many things. Your favorite sports team or your, your favorite show, maybe politics or a hobby or something. But what Jesus was zealous, what he was zealous about was that we would know what this place is about. God wants us to know his son died. His son died so that we can walk in freedom from sin, so that we can walk rightly in relationship with God. And he wants us to be zealous for one thing as well, that we would see that everything else in our life is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, and that we would come before God and we will say, Lord, in your house, as your people, God, you died. 
I remember that in this place, as we gather, you died. I want to remember that so that there be no ulterior motives in my approach to you. So that I'll approach you with a pure heart. You have made me so that I can walk with you rightly. That was accomplished by you being consumed by the wrath of God. And I won't trade it in for any veneer of religion, any cheap thing. I want you, God. I want you. You died to make that possible for me. Let's stand, brothers and sisters.